Welcome to the Bill Stokes Podcast, where we shine a light on things that matter. My name is Bill Stokes. I'm your host. I'm also the publisher of Springfield Scene Magazine. And in this podcast series, we're going to interview people that have been featured in our magazine. Our intention is to give our followers an in-depth look into the lives and the work of our guests that goes well beyond what the magazine allows. Today's guest is our author, Teresa Shelton. She was featured in the magazine in the July-August issue of 2020. We will be talking about our newly published book titled The Sergeant's Daughter. I've had the pleasure of reading the book and will be talking to Teresa about the story and its impact on her life. Our sponsors are the advertisers in Springfield Scene Magazine. We are fortunate to have strong support from the many sectors in our community. Many of our advertisers have been, have been with us since the very beginning, back in 2005. And that's primarily because we present their goods and services in a stylish magazine that many in the community enjoy reading, paging through its beautiful pages, and looking at the amazing photography for which we are known. Subscribe today at SpringfieldScenemagazine.com and receive six issues a year, delivered right to your home of business. And you can learn more about advertising in the magazine by sending an email to MediaKit at SpringfieldScenemagazine.com. That's MediaKit, one word, at SpringfieldScenemagazine.com. Now let's start the podcast. Teresa. Hi, how's it going? Good, good, good. My audio is starting there. There she is. How you doing? <laughs> I'm great. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing fantastic. I've been so looking forward to talking to you after having oh. read your book. I, um, I think there's a kindred spirit that lives um, <laughs> between you and I because of the way I was raised as well. Oh, do tell. Well, you know, um, I stopped getting uh, uh, belt whippings when Dad mm -hmm. couldn't catch me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, uh, you're about six years younger than me, so it was about the same period of time when that type of discipline was was pretty much uh, status quo. I mean, it, I got whippings in school all the time, paddled with uh, um, uh, with boards that had holes in them to make them move through the air faster. <laughs> And that was going on all through the 60s. Yeah, that's true. Um, although I, I do think that um, <clears throat> although there is a healthy way to uh, punish um, and, quote, paddle, um, I think that uh, I, I think in my story, at least, it, it swung pretty far to, um, you know, physical abuse. Um, would you call yours physical abuse? Of course, at the time, <laughs> and you know, I, I was raised in a family of five kids, so there was plenty of spankings going on. Uh, I don't recall ever being spanked because my one of my brothers or sisters got in trouble, mm -hmm. uh, like your your life uh, yeah. had. That was the cruelest of all the things that I saw going on in your story. Uh, was um, everybody was punished equally, regardless of what the the the, uh, the problem was. Yeah, whoever committed the infraction, it didn't really matter. Um, we were all uh, going to get punished. And yeah, and like um, I described, what that did is just, um, you know, eliminate any sisterly bond 
that we might have. Because, you know, there are times when I hated my sisters because they just represented pain and trouble and discomfort. And I often wonder if that was sort of a strategy of his, that he, you know, he didn't really want us to gang up against him. And so this was sort of his way of making sure that that didn't happen. Where do you think he got those ideas? Because I don't recall in the book you talking about his parents that would have given you any indication that they raised him to be like that. No, I really believe it was just it's a pathological issue. And something is just has been burning in him since he was a young child. And I think in the very beginning, I talked about how it did trouble my grandmother, although we never really had a frank discussion about what was going on in my house. I think she sort of knew and she would give me sort of little pictures of what he was like as a child. And I open up the book with one of the most graphic, difficult things that I think I had to live with as far as my grandmother's stories is when she told me the story about the cats. So, you know, now we know children who are violent toward animals at a very early age have this trajectory that is not a pleasant one, you know, that they turn into sometimes pretty difficult, violent people. And I think today, if that were to happen, we would all jump up and, you know, there would be some therapy, there'd be some interventions and teachers and, you know, there have been some indicators and we would have, you know, jumped on it. But in those days, I just don't think we knew enough about mental health. And my grandparents certainly didn't have the resources and the school wouldn't have had the resources or the knowledge. And he was just a troubled kid who I think they just kind of pushed through school. And so, no, I don't think that my dad was abused as a child. I think, you know, his dad was born in 1895. And I think that both, so he was in his early 40s by the time my dad came around. And I think he just found dad very challenging. And yes, he made trips to the woodshed. But when I asked my dad to recall those trips, you know, he just said that he felt like he probably deserved every one of them. He recalled the worst beating that he got or trip to the woodshed is that he pushed his sister off a horse and she broke her leg. So, you know, that deserves some kind of punishment, whether it's a trip to the woodshed. But, you know, in 1930, late 1930s, early 1940s, that again, like you said, in the 60s, you know, we were being paddled, but they were, you know, taken to the shed and beat pretty good. So when I asked him, dad, did you feel like you were abused? He, you know, was offended that I even suggested that his dad or mom was abusive to him. So the answer is, I don't really know where it came from. I think it's just a pathological problem that never got addressed. And so therefore, it just accelerated through time. 
Uh, it's amazing how, uh, I mean, tra traumatic events meant something different to him then. Maybe it just uh, codified his, his uh, violent tendencies um, mm -hmm. in those moments. And, you know, no one knew back then. No one had studied the psychology of how to raise a child. Uh, it wasn't until, what, the 50s or the 60s that that started yeah. becoming vogue and and uh, understanding how, how fragile children's minds are and how they can be uh, damaged significantly with um, not having enough love. Uh, yes. Uh, and and understanding and and um, uh, although we all uh, we talk about snowflakes today, because <laughs> you and mm -hmm. I have been through some tough times. So, um, and we think that boy, the kids today they couldn't have survived <laughs> uh, back in our day, right? Yes, and uh, resilience is definitely something that I've um, come to understand that that's something that um, I had to have. And that um, it's it, uh, because of my upbringing, it is definitely a skill that I have. And I, I equate it to resilience being a little bit like a muscle. The more you use it, the more you know how to use it, mm -hmm. and the more the stronger it is. Um, so with time, I sort of built up um, some uh, resilience. And then obviously, you know, for, for decades, I just pretended it didn't happen, you know, just get it behind me. Right, um, right. Sort of. So um, I, I agree, but thank goodness, thank goodness that there are fewer and fewer children. Um, I would like to say that there are fewer and fewer children that are abused, but unfortunately that's, um, that's not the case. Um, and during this pandemic, um, you know, although the reporting is down, we absolutely know that, um, you know, abuse is going on in these homes. Um, I, my heart just breaks uh, because I would, I would project, you know, during this pandemic when we were all shut in and couldn't, couldn't even go outside hardly, um, my heart broke for the, the children and the spouses that were just captive in that environment. And I project my own experience in this. And, mm -hmm. oh, I tell you, I, it was heartbreaking. It really was um, to know that they, they couldn't go outside. They couldn't go to friend's house. They weren't going to church. They weren't going to school. Um, you know, uh, there was just no escape. Um, and, uh, you know, I talk about how my knees would shake, um, you know, as a response. I just knew internally when things were about to go south and, um, you know, my knees would, would shake. And so I just thought about all the poor kids who, whose knees were shaking because they just couldn't get away from um, their abuser during this pandemic. Um, is that is so, that still a um, a barometer for when things are about to go bad today for you? Thank goodness it isn't. Yeah, <laughs> you know my daughter's birth was sort of the end. It was somehow a rebirth for me. Um, after that, I just knew that um, you know it, it, it. You know, I used to always think that that my dad was the biggest baddest person alive, and then after I became a mother. Um, I just sort of took on that role, and I was just, uh-uh, this isn't, this isn't going to happen. It's certainly not going to happen to my children, and um, I am a mama lion, a mama bear, and mm. uh, so 
it stopped about that time. So no, my, my knees don't shake anymore. Thank goodness. Right. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We all have kind of tales sometimes uh, that things aren't quite right. Uh, and mm-hmm. that gut instinct, what is yours today? Today, um, uh, it's, it's probably not a physical thing. It's probably just more of a, um, a fretting um, sort of thing. If I, um, especially with our children, we all can sort of tell when uh, things aren't going uh, quite right. Um, and so I, I probably fret more uh, the internal dialogue um, sort of. Um, so I think it's definitely more internal now um, mm-hmm. is, is the, uh, the processing and the indicators are there. And then um, instead of shooting from the hip and, and reacting, then I process about what, what would be the normal reaction to something like this. Mm-hmm. And I've had to do that most of my life because obviously I don't really know what normalcy is. Um, well, you would just clam up and not yes. and hold everything in and 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 wait to see what happened and brace True. yourself for the worst. I mean, True. and that doesn't work so much in 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 life in general. I mean, you you've got to no. speak up and speak out. Yes, and it has sort of a self-loathing um, effect. Mm-hmm. Is then you know, and and that was a, a, one of the. Um, harshest outcome of my mother never protecting us, never even taking a chance at protecting us, is that it single-handedly did the most to my self-esteem. So if you don't feel worthy uh, uh, of your mother even protecting you, then obviously no one else is going to protect you too. And then you just feel like you're not worthy of being protected of having a reaction, um, having an opinion, it just, you can extrapolate it out on, my my husband would just, um, you know, plead with me to tell him what was bothering me, what, how I felt about something, what were, what was my opinion about something. And I just didn't feel worthy of, of giving, Mm. uh, of expressing those because, um, you know, I was just, there could be consequences. Uh, there could be consequences. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, uncomfortable. That I mean, that's the other part of it. It's like, yeah, I'm, I could tell you, but no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. And pe- people used to think, uh, a question that I get a lot is, uh, what was the hardest part about telling your story, about writing this story? And most people would think that it would be reliving the beatings, you know. Um, and, and, and as I wrote in the book, you know, Dad had this sort of uh, regimen that he would go through. And, and uh, we'd have to get in line and watch as our sister was being um, abused. And when it became our turn, he, you know, he'd start high on our shoulders and then, you know, with the belt. So you, you sort of had an indicator of when it was going to be over, you know, as wow. it got down further. And um, so, you know, reliving those, um, you know, I think people feel like might have been the hardest thing for me. But honestly, it, it was just remembering my mother's inability to step in to defend her children 
um, that was the hardest. You know, hearing her say over and over again, just bear down, it'll be over before you know it. Um, and again, it goes back to your self-worth. Uh, yeah, just get go in there, um, you know, do this for me, was sort of her plea. You know, just, just go in there, just it'll be over before you know it, and then everything will be fine. Well, it'll be fine until he gets aggravated the next time. Till one of us does uh, a very normal ch children, you know, mm -hmm. actions, and uh, then there'll be this severe reaction from him, and then no reaction from mom. So that was probably the toughest thing for me is to just remember how um, weak, quite frankly, um, she was and her inability to even question my father. Well, I think there was a lot more paddlings going on back then, whippings. Um, I can remember at my uh, papa's house uh, when I was a kid, I uh, took the push mower and, and, and mowed down all the flowers in grandma's bed because it looked pretty mm -hmm. with the flowers coming out through the through that uh, manual mower. And Papa mm -hmm. got home from work and says, go cut your switch, son, from the tree. And mm -hmm. um, and I went out and cut a switch I thought wasn't going to hurt very much. <laughs> <laughs> he chose poorly. Huh? I chose poorly. <laughs> they would have, any of them would have hurt. <laughs> yeah. Those little yeah. stinging ones. <laughs> yes. But, you, you know, know I, there was, it was, a, it was an action consequence situation yes and and that was different than what i read in your book that you went yeah. through there wasn't yes. any action that you took that caused right. those consequences and that had to have been horrible to go through it was it was and i think i i described that it, it didn't even really matter at some at, at some point what the infraction was or even if there was an infraction if he came home in a mood it, it was just going to happen so he would look, you know, at these inspections that we would have. Um, wow. You know, he would look and keep looking until he found something that would be punishable. And then, you know, there it would be. He, um, had, he got some sick pleasure out of that. It, it he had... did. It, it just, there was something that made him, he, he was definitely better. Um, whatever it was that was troubling him, it was resolved uh, by taking it out on uh, on us. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, like my husband was paddled a couple times as a child. It's not something that I ever did um, and didn't really permit it in, in our home. But I know that he doesn't have a negative, uh, he, he doesn't see the negative connotation as associated with, as you said, a consequence of, of a certain behavior. Right, right. And there were a couple, couple times that he remembers being paddled and, um, you know, he honestly didn't see anything wrong with it. Um, but it was just something that, that I, I just couldn't uh, do or see or tolerate or accept um, in any way. Um, and we are um, victims, um, but you know, just like if you grow up in, in other abusive homes, like if you're sexually abused or if your father and mother is an alcoholic and it's in a, the, these addictions, um, there's a high percentage of a chance that you will um, do the same thing. You know, you live, you learn what you live or live what you, you know, that saying. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I, and at one point I even looked it up. I think 60% of us as abused children abuse our own children. Yeah, I believe that. So I just didn't even want to go there. Just like with an alcoholic, you just don't even want to take that first drink. I just, I was just not going to in any way see, be a part of, or be, or spank my children. Just because I was afraid, especially early on. You know, when it got real stressful, would I, you know, regress back to what I knew. And so what was, what is, what was your consequences to your kids if they misbehave? We did a lot of, you know, timeout sort of things. Isolation was probably the most, but, you know, I was, we were pretty thankful that we just didn't really have, you know, a lot, our children were pretty well behaved. But I would say definitely take away privileges, isolation, you know, you can't do something that you wanted to do. And they were all pretty smart. It didn't take too long before they realized, you know, okay, if I do that, then I'm not going to be able to go out on Saturday night or go out and play with my friends or those sort of things. So I think it's pretty effective. I know it works on our German Shepherd. She doesn't like timeouts. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned something about the estrangement that took place with your sisters. And I have that with my siblings as well, except for one sibling, my sister that was born right after me. We're pretty close, although we don't see each other much because she lives in Indianapolis. But with my other siblings, yeah, there's no, there's not any closeness and there's no desire on either party's part to try to engage or get together. I remember last time I talked to my brother, it was when someone on his wife's side of the family had passed away that I thought was going to be consequential to him and Bev. And I called and I said, you know, I'd like to come down. He says, please don't come. You know, I was not going to get, I wasn't going to add any comfort to the family. It was just going to make it more stressful for him. Yeah, it's so sad, isn't it? I wrote an article for a counselor about sisterly and she wanted to share it with some of her clients. And, you know, when I see siblings, you know, especially sisters or brothers or, and I see the way that, you know, they can't go a day without talking to them. They're their best friends. They, you know, when something goes wrong, they're the first person they turn to. I just, I want, I wish I had something like that, but I don't. I never had it with my oldest sister. And, you know, Karen, my youngest sister and I have tried and we're still trying. We haven't given up, but dad still tries to intervene in that. And he would do things to try to put stress between us, distance between us. He would, you know, call and say, well, you know, I just got off the phone with your sister and she said, da, 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 da. And now I know my father is a pathological liar and there's probably very little truth in what it is that he said. But 
it was destructive for a long time. And when he would see us get closer, then he would start to undermine it with little bit of things, you know. So even to this day, we have to sort of deal with this. And I don't know what threatens him so much about us being good friends. I just adore that my children, you know, are good friends. And that, you know, my younger two are even living together and have since the pandemic. And, you know, would describe each other as their best friends. I just love that. And I don't get what happened or what triggers in him that he wouldn't take joy from us liking each other. It was the exact opposite. He loved it when we were fighting. Even physically. I remember growing up that my youngest sister, Karen, was probably a tomboy. And she was physically very strong. Had his muscular structure and where I was just kind of tall and lean. And so she wanted to wrestle all the time. And inevitably, I would get, you know, pinned or hurt or something. And instead of him saying, you know, let your sister up, he'd get down on the floor and slam the floor and basically just say, pin her down, get her down, get her down. You know, so he just enjoyed it. And then when we got older and we could use our words to hurt each other, he would laugh if we would call each other nasty names or be sarcastic and angry with each other. He would just get such a kick out of it that we were mad or upset with one another. So I don't get it. It's just, again, another pathological issue that somehow us being close takes something away from him. As opposed to adding and enriching his life, which is what it does for me. I feel somehow like a sense of accomplishment that I did a decent job if my kids like each other. Well, it must be, you know, just the story you just shared was an indication that he has a disease, that he never outgrew that state of mind. And today probably still feels good. You know, there's that you've heard the stories about the drama queens that they had a lot of drama in their life. And they only feel good when they create drama in the present moment. It's like it makes them feel good inside because it brings back a familiarity of their childhood that they somehow learned to like. And you can see that in some people sometimes, that all of a sudden we're having a great conversation and then drama gets created and arguments ensue. It's like, where did that come from? We were just having a good conversation a minute ago. Right. And like you said earlier, and then in my world, my attitude was just to shut down instead of, you know, when those kind of things start to happen, when the drama started in in my life, then I would just shut down, need to get away, go away, you know, internalize, figure out. So do you have a place like that in your home right now where you can just get away? You know, right now I spend a lot of time alone. And so I don't really need a place per se. But if I do, it would probably be my bedroom. I have a chair reading kind of nook in my bedroom. And I would, that's probably where I would go. 
um, if I needed to. But, you know, our children are all gone and my husband still works. And although I have things I like to do and I'm out, I, I spend more time alone than I do um, with others, especially uh, during this pandemic. Oh, so yeah. um, I don't really need a safe space now. And I guess that's what it, uh, maybe it was at, at some point, just a safe place where I could go and shut the door and just breathe. Um, and I don't really, I don't really need that anymore. And maybe writing the book has, has been part of that, but just well, it, def- it, it had to be cathartic. I don't know how in the world you remembered all that detail that far back. You, you yes. must have really meditated a lot on the, on the, on those experiences to remember such detail. And it all happened to you before you were 20 years old. Yes. And a lot of people have said that. Even Karen, my youngest sister, when she read it, you know, um, especially in the beginning, she would just say, I, uh, I, I didn't remember it until I started reading it and then it would come back. And, and she would say, um, how can you remember this? And the, I hear, and, and here's my explanation. I think the explanation is that all of us have memories. And if I would ask you, what is your, you know, number of three, four, and five memories of it as a child? Mm. You might go back to a vacation, or maybe to a friend's uh, house, or um, a an, an car, or um, or something. Um, and I think most of those memories are, are pleasant. I think when we go back, we try to uh, think about those. For me, um, and, and because of this sick kind of circle, that, that cycle that went on in my house, I would play these things over and over and over again, mm. um, trying to figure out what I had done wrong. Um, how I could, when it comes up again, because it will come up again, what can I do differently so I don't get in trouble? Um, so I think that's why my internal dialogue mm. was just, on, uh, it just never stopped playing. It was on autoplay and I would just recall. And obviously, um, they have a significant impact, you know, um, like the first beating that I recall, the whole pizza man, um, uh, thing, you know, simple, silly little things. We're outside. We're um, having a good time with our friends. This out of the ordinary thing happens that all of the kids in the neighborhood thought was an interesting thing. But for some reason, my dad found it to be completely disrespectful. Um, so, you know, you just play these things over and over again. And I think that's why. And then obviously, as I began to think about them, other things, you know, would, would come up on, and, um, because like I said, for about 20 years, I just tried to pretend like it didn't happen. It's behind me and it's over. Right. right. Uh, And, um, the way I explained it to my children is that what I finally realized is it's a little bit, um, my abuse and my history is a little bit like our shadow. You know, you don't always see it. But it's it's always behind, and it is behind you, but yet it's always there. Right. So I think that's, um, you know, what I, I, I finally realized. It. And um, so recalling those were um, not as difficult as I, as I thought that they would be. You know, they're stories that are in my head and in my brain. And then a few times um, when uh, 
when a situation happened that I didn't quite understand, then I would. I'd reach out to my dad. My mother had already passed by the time I'd gotten to actually writing things down. And I would say, okay, dad, tell me about why did we drive to Alaska again? You know, or when, you know, and then he would, you know, give his side of what had happened. And then you have to take that with a grain of salt because, you know, he, like I said, is a pathological liar. And so he's going to present it in a way that only that, you know, inflates my view of him or he inflates his view of himself. Right. So. Well, the embellishments that he's done in his own mind to make things right, it probably has colored it to the point where he doesn't really know, doesn't remember what really happened. Yes, he doesn't. He doesn't. That's interesting. So in neuro-linguistic programming, I don't know if you've ever studied that or read about it. It's called NLP for short. There is this way of taking past trauma and coupling it with a more pleasant experience so that you have another path to think about that experience. So something traumatic in your mind, you take it and you make a funny make it funny in some way in your mind while you're vividly remembering it so that when that memory comes up again, you end up with another path to take your mind down instead of being stuck in that in that circle of trauma. And it sounds like you've done a little bit of that for yourself. I think I have. And definitely, I think writing the book did that too. Just, you know, my oldest son called it a mind dump. Um, you know, like he read the, the first draft, which was clearly, if I thought about it, I, I, I wrote it down. Mm-hmm. And so he said, you know, it, he called it a mind dump. Mm-hmm. So I think that's exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. I, I was able to um, write it down finally, completely. And um, although I, when I think about them, I don't have a pleasant reaction. At least it's something that, hmm, you know, okay, yeah. I yeah. survived. I'm resilient. Um, you know, there are good things that have come from that. Doesn't um, serve you to, I, to dwell yes. on it. Yeah, it doesn't serve you. Yes, um, I, I'm determined. I um, am resilient. I'm tough. I'm, you know, all of these things I can see was, a, a, you know, an outcome of, of really uh, of my upbringing. Um, so, and I also, I think I, I wish... Um, Speaking about this too, isn't that a way that uh, my my niece was in the um, in the army? So my youngest sister's daughter, and she served a couple ter- uh, um, tours. She did a couple tours in Afghanistan and one in Iraq, and she ran um, a bunch of um, ambulances. And so she seen and heard and lived a lot of things. And this was part of the therapy that you described that that she went through too. That you know, she would relive it in a safe place with a safe person, mm. and then they would try to get you know her to think about something else when that would uh, when that would surface. So I think it's very useful and very therapeutic. And writing my book absolutely did uh, did that for me. It's, it was the mind dump. <laughs> well, thank you yeah. for doing that because it certainly uh, uh, helped me. Because every time you went through a trauma in that book, I would remember things in my life that were similar 
um, and it, it, it helped me understand a lot about um, uh, the way things are in my family. Mm-hmm. Both my parents have passed on, but it, it was really hard for me with my dad at the end because uh, we didn't have the kind of rapport that, uh, just like you didn't have the kind of rapport that, that you would have liked. Um, there was times uh, when we had that, but for the most part, there wasn't much rapport there. And uh, yeah. I didn't like the way it ended. Uh, the last few conversations we had didn't end very well. But um, um, Well, I sort of ended about three years ago. I, I haven't really spoken to my father for about three and a half years. Um, he, I, I told you earlier how he um, still today tries to um, uh, he, he still is threatened by my relationship with my sister, Karen. Right. And um, so um, about four years ago, he, 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 he developed this huge string of lies um, that implicated both me and Karen. Um, and um, I confronted him um, with it. But, but I, I warned him over the years that uh, the number one thing that is going to have a, an impact on our um, relationship is we have to be honest uh, with each other. And I also told him he had to do part of the work um, and he, he'd need to be humble, but honesty was the most important thing. And over the years, um, you know, I would point out now, you know, so dad, and it would be silly, silly things like, um, Oh, you know, it only took me four hours to get to your house. Well, okay, it's 500 miles, uh, <laughs> you know. So, no, no. And then he would just double down, you know, on, on these kind of things. Um, wow. So, um, basically, when this, when he, uh, almost four years ago, uh, developed this huge scenario of a big lie, um, I confronted him. And just just said, um, you know, you have 24 hours to to own it and to admit to it and to apologize to me and Karen, or Dad, I'm I'm going to discontinue our relationship. I can't have it anymore. Um, and I told him that I understood that you know this has been a problem that he's had for the majority of his life. He just never got the lesson that we all got sooner. Uh, rather than later, is that honesty is the best policy. Really, if you just own up to it, you're going to get punished less than um, if you don't. He, he never got that lesson. So um, he uh, he called 24 hours later, and, and I, I, my heart quickened a little bit, thinking that, you know, maybe this might finally be the breakthrough. And um, he, he said that he um, had been doing some thinking and that I was right, that, that, that there had been a pattern of lying, um, but that I was the person who was the liar. Oh, my God. You're uh-huh. kidding me. No, that wow. I, was, I was the biggest liar he knew and that he had actually had started recalling since the age of four, all of the lies that he remembered that I had told him that I, you know, at the age of four, no, I hadn't been outside when I had clearly been outside to um, when he asked me when I was 17 and pregnant, but he didn't know 
that I was pregnant yet if I was having sex and I lied and said, no, I was not having sex. So he started down this, you know, list of all of the lies that he felt like I had told him. And so I said, dad, I told him that, you know, he was basically just trying to do a switch and bait on that. That's that's not what this is about. We can talk about my lying if you want to. But right now, what's at hand is what happened here. And then he just started in, you know, with his screaming and yelling. And I hung up on him and I haven't really talked to him since. Oh, my gosh. He's tried to call 10 or 12 times and I just have blocked him. Now, is he have heart disease or anything he's taking? Yeah. And he has COPD because he still smokes and prostate cancer. And he's in his mid to late 80s. And so, I mean, right now, I feel like this is the best thing for me. You know, I've given him. So, you know, when you said when your dad when your dad passed that you didn't really like the way it ended. And so that there is a fear. I have that fear that I may have those same feelings that you have. But right now, I just feel like I if he would were to pass away tomorrow, that I've given him more chances than I think any person, any other person. I honestly feel that any other person would. So I I can he can go with me knowing I did everything I could. It takes two to reconcile. It does. And I just don't think he it's it within him. He doesn't have the capacity to forgive or to forget. So now if he were to pass away tomorrow, how how would I feel? I hope that I would still feel at peace with it. But one never knows. Do you wish you'd done something differently? I wish I'd had more love in my heart. But I the you know, I've got a photo that I took a beautiful photo. I took a mom and dad a few years before dad died. And it's on my mantle. And I so I see him regularly. And 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 what I see is what comes out of me. Because if if I'm in a great mood, I look at it and I think, oh, he was my father. You know, that's my mother and father. And it makes it brings love into your awareness. It takes you out of your head into your heart. And but if I'm not feeling good and I look at it, I remember the bad stuff. So, yeah, you dirty SOB. Why did you make me do that? So there's both of those experiences there. And, and, but, you know, that has been my whole life. You know, it's like, I've had a great deal of success in my life and and things have come easy for me overall. I mean, I've had challenges, but because of the toughness that came out of being raised that way, you have the resilience to push through just about anything that comes in your path. It's like unbelievable. other people would just melt away and go away uh, yeah. or abandon their, their dreams. But it's, it didn't happen that way for me. I would say, look, you know, nobody's going to take my intentions away from me. I'm going to make this happen. And I would push through it and make things happen for myself. That's uh, right. And Same. yeah. 
So that's yeah. that's the difference that from being raised like that than not being being raised with timeouts <laughs> versus <laughs> the paddle, right? right. Um, uh, but I do think there was consequences earlier on in my life that I made choices that um, where I would avoid those uh, circumstances where I thought I would get paddled or get in trouble um, and not take chances that might have been better for me. Yes, uh, for sure. Less fear. Yeah. Um, you know, I was one of those, uh, dad was one of those, uh, parents where he, he would ask you to do something come back a minute later and say, are you done yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, for sure. You know, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, I do. I'm going to give you 25 seconds to finish that. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, I think the military certainly had an impact on my dad too. You know, he yeah. went in when he was 17 and a st- you know, was a lifer stayed in for 21 years, and I just think that um, sort of, you know, the whole inspections, he just couldn't leave it at work. You know, when he got home, um, you know, he, he just reenact, reenacted what he knew. Or maybe he had a bad inspection, and so he needed to, you know, feel the power of being the person who gave the inspection as opposed to the person who had to, you know, uh, live up to an inspection. Um so I think the military, um, you know, was tough. Um, some people have responded and asked if, you know, the knowing what our vets experienced when they came home from Vietnam, um, they wondered if that had some impact on him. And um, it would be nice for me to say, be able to, to excuse some of it. Uh, but unfortunately, there had been so much abuse, so much of an indicator long before he left. Right, that right. quite frankly... As I wrote in the book, for about a year after he came back, he was probably, you know, we had fewer inspections. He let us read mm. in the house, yeah. you know, and that was um, the cruelest of all things he could have asked you to do. And that was to not study in the house. Oh, yeah. We couldn't do homework and we couldn't read. And we, you know, not, not for certainly not for pleasure. If he caught us with our head in a book. Oh, my gosh. You know, there would be a. Uh, list of a hundred things that, you know, physical things that we would have to do. If we've got time to waste reading, <laughs> then he make sure that we wouldn't have that time for um, some time. Well, that was fear. Uh, so, that was his fear. It wasn't, he uh-huh. was fearful of you becoming smart enough to know that what he was doing wasn't right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes, that is true. And, uh, and he couldn't have that. So we have talked a lot about sort of some of the grim subjects of my book and and up, um, upbringing and um, but I, I did also want to point out uh, to folks that um, there are also some um, heartwarming um, things um, and mostly by total strangers um, and uh, that happened to me as a child. You know, I mean, my, my grandfather was probably the um, the exception. But um, I think another thing that I learned in writing this book and kind of reliving my life is not to un, um, uh, underestimate the kindness of um, total strangers. Um, you know, teachers, uh, next door neighbors, Girl Scout leaders, um, uh, you know, uh, a, a minister at church. Um, you know, all of these people who unknowingly had, you know, such a major impact on my life. 
by showing me, um, they helped me learn that what was going on in my house was wrong. Um, because they showed me a little bit of normalcy and what kind and loving relationships look like. Um, and they just did, you know, um, so much for me. I just don't know where I would be um, without them, honestly. A safe place to go sometimes, um, a um, just a kind word, um, and, uh, you know, I somebody doing something special for me. Uh, that was something that never happened in my house. The only person who got treated especially was our dad and all four of us, that was, that was yeah. our role to make sure that dad's needs were always met um, and anticipate his needs so that everybody, everybody can just get along. Um, so when a girlfriend's mother I, I happen to mention I love peanut butter cookies. The next time I come, they're peanut butter cookies. Just something as as innocent as that it was just so heartwarming um, to me and had a, a significant impact um, on me. And I'm so forever grateful um, to those people. There was some and, good. I I agree with you. Those were great stories in the book. They were great. Yes, my first my kindergarten teacher. You know, Mrs. Nash, who was the first person to read to me. Oh, my. I can still hear her voice. Mm. Um, she was a large black woman. And, um, uh, you know, you could just get a, a hug forever um, from her. <laughs> and I just remember almost burying my face um, in her. And, um, and I can hear her deep voice and reading to, to me, oh my gosh, I uh, I just loved her, um, and her taking time explaining things to me that my own parents would. Um, the only thing I learned later uh, is uh, she she hated that I wrote uh, with my left hand, and <laughs> every time she saw that I had that pencil in my left hand, she would run down the aisle, take it out of my left hand. And put it in my right. And, of course, we've learned now that that's uh, not a great thing to do. Uh, and she would tell me very, she'd pat me on the shoulder and just say, you know, it's a right-handed world, sweetheart. Yeah, I remember right that. <laughs> so now, did, can, Dad, you, can you write with both hands now? I don't. I don't now. I mean, because she did such an effective job at, uh, mm. you know, that. Uh, but I still can do some things. Like, you know, when I played tennis, sometimes I would uh, play left-handed, and my youngest son is uh, is left-handed. But um, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, some of the teachers. Um, another teacher was my third-grade teacher who um, took on Dad when she picked up that I had, oh, shocking, some reading, um, you know, issues. Um, and um, she confronted my dad, and he, um, you know, uh, she was the strongest woman that I think I've ever seen um, at that point by just not backing down. And all I knew is that, you know, women back down when 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 men raise their voices we're supposed to be quiet and not confront them and not challenge them um and then of course the next door neighbors the hispanic couple who i just adored the garcias that yeah. um were so kind and so loving to me 
and um, you know, it just felt super, super special. Um, so total strangers, um, just and girlfriends and girlfriends' mothers, and um, but I'll tell you one unintended consequence of of this that I, I I just like I said it was unintended. I wouldn't didn't anticipate is some of these people um, didn't know the story. Like, um, you know, my, I talk about my friend Phyllis in high school, yeah. and Sharon in high school, and uh, Randy Joe Smith, the, the, the guy who gave me a Snickers bar um, every day. <laughs> at, at Those people, after they, they found out about my book and read it, they reached out to me, and all most of them, no, all of them, felt like they had failed me that somehow they should have known and somehow they could have done yeah. more. They should have done more. They, you know, oh, and especially one of the teachers in high school, Mrs. Priest, who was one of my favorite um, teachers. Um, I loved the way she managed her classroom. Of course, I didn't know it then, but now I understand completely. Um, she stood up straight and, um, and manage that classroom without raising her voice. Even the rowdy boys in the back knew, you don't mess with this woman. <laughs> <laughs> and so she had a huge impact on me. But even Mrs. Priest felt so bad. I mean, I came close. She was the only teacher that I told. My dad doesn't allow me to do my homework because she caught me one day. I, you know, Normally I could get up early enough in the morning after dad left to do, she was my accounting teacher, to do my homework. But that particular morning, it was just more hours than I uh, had. And um, so she was the only teacher that I told that we weren't allowed to do our homework at home. And she said, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. And of course, it is the silliest thing we've ever heard. But even Mrs. Priest felt like she needed to um, justify why she, you know, maybe didn't do more. And she said, of course, today we know more, we do more. And my intent of sharing these wonderful people was, again, to reinforce the idea that simple acts of kindness make a difference. But those people were the ones who felt like they failed me. Um, so... Even though you gave them a lot of credit, they still... I did, and it was a lot of credit. I knew, it never crossed my mind. Um, like I said, I, my dad was the biggest, baddest guy. Nobody was going to be able to take him down. No one. So, um, and if my own mother doesn't feel like she can protect me and stand up for me, I certainly didn't expect total strangers to... So I, um, it never once crossed my mind that they had failed me in any way. It was, it was the exact opposite. It enriched my life and gave me an idea of what I could be searching for and want for myself and for my own children. Um, so I, I'm still well, very thankful to them. The, um, what is it, the thing that they've discovered in psychology that you get your self-worth from the parent of the opposite sex yes yeah and so, so you have your father's strength even though you don't have his his um, psychopathic uh, tendencies yeah that's true yeah and he never once ever um told us that he loved us never he just couldn't 
And later on, when I, when we were trying to make peace, I would ask him, I just, I don't get it, dad. Number one, how can you not do that? I tell my children every single time I talk to them every day um, that I love them. And if they don't want a hug too bad, we're going to have a hug. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I just don't know how it's, and he never hugged us. So how is it not, how is it possible not to tell your children that you love them and not to, to hug them and, um, and he, he just said that he just felt like um, it, would, it was a weakness, that we would think that he was weak if, um, you know, he was gushy, um, and that he felt like that was mom's role. And mom didn't really say it all that often either. Uh, he, he, you know, both of them just felt like when I uh, addressed this with them that, you know, uh, it was just expected. I knew that they loved me because of the, I had clothes, didn't I? And I had a house, didn't I? And I went to school and those kind of things. It wasn't necessary to say, I love you because it was clear. I asked my daughter once, this is when she was in, um, I think she might've been uh, going to high school. I was driving her to work. And I said, "Uh, Lauren, how do you know that I love you? And she says, well, when you buy me things, I know you love me. (laughs) And I realized then that I had, I probably wasn't being as tender with her and as, as, as I should be. And, uh, but it was a big, it was a big wake up call to me that Mm -hmm. that's how she started defining that I loved her. Of course, we were not living in the same household because we got, my wife and I got divorced. Um, her mother and I got divorced when I was, when she was six years old. So I had her every other weekend and, and during the week, uh, a couple of days. Yeah. So, um, so it was one of those types of things where I was trying to make up for the fact that I wasn't in her life full time. Of course. And that's yeah. how, and that's what she got used to. Yes. Yes. And of recent, I, um, uh, realized that, um, I, I swung really far on the other side of the continuum, you know, my dad was here on the, on the loving kindness, um, doing things special, um, uh, doing things period. And then I swung all the way on the other side with, with my children. And some of that was good. Some of that was great. Um, but, um, and later in life, I realized that, um, I really didn't want to see my children struggle. I didn't really want them to have to struggle. So the moment I saw they were struggling, mom stepped in. Oh, you're having trouble with this? Let me help you with it. Let me let me help you get through it. Or let me do it for you. Right. Uh, kind of. And so it cheated them a little bit. Um, the, the fulfillment that you get out of completing something 100% on your own. Um, now they had those because obviously they they their grades and things like that. But I'm I'm realizing that I stepped in too soon because no one ever stepped in for me. So I swung all the way. Oh, on the I other see. Side. Yeah, and sometimes letting them fail is the best thing you can oh, do for them. Yeah. <laughs> I know it, it was really really hard for me. I just didn't want them to struggle. Period. In any way. Yeah. And I think when you grow up struggling every single day, you just just one of those things that you tell yourself, I'm not going to let my kids, you know, I'm not going to do this. It was wrong. It was bad. So, you know, moderation has always been a difficult concept for me. (laughs) 
and but you don't have to feel bad. I mean, they chose you, right? They they chose yes. to come through you, so they they knew what they were getting when they chose yes. you. Yes, <laughs> yes, and they probably wouldn't say that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I feel so incredibly fortunate that my children adore me, and I adore them. And not that it's perfect. We not we aren't perfect, um, but. Um, I think they could see, and they're smart enough to understand that my intentions were good, were really good. Actually. I, I was curious about Heather and yes. and her relationship with her dad. Yes, it's strained. Um, I think uh, he he remarried uh, um, about the time that Mark and I got married, and his um, new wife. Um, really was uncomfortable with the idea that he had a life before she came in it. Okay. And so, um, as I said in the epilogue, um, you know, her biological father allowed Mark to adopt her. Um, so her legal um, father is Mark. And, um, but she, you know, she knew about Jeff and uh, there were times when Jeff's parents were, would come and, and be involved and, and do things. And at different times, you know, she would sort of reach out. But I think, I think Jeff was dealing with them, his new family and new issues. And, um, and then there were some consistency issues that sometimes are hard for the parent who's outside of the, of the bubble you know, like I'll be there on Friday and then he doesn't show up on Friday and mm -hmm. then I'll be there on Saturday at four and he shows up Friday at, you know, Saturday at set, you know, those kind of things that as adults, we don't think that is that big of a deal, but really has a significant impact on children. Yes. Um, so, uh, but, um, you know, she goes to weddings and she goes to um, christenings and baby showers and and stuff like that for with um jeff's family and so she has relationship with him but you know it's it, it's not as yeah. close yeah. To, as it might have been if if someone says how's your dad she's gonna she's gonna tell you how mark is <laughs> and, and what, he, and what yeah. he's doing right and um and she has said many many times um uh, how thankful she is that, you know, dad came along. Uh, and we both are. He saved us both. <laughs> <laughs> he That's really great. did. Yeah. He really did save Well, he's me. a nice, I've met Mark and, and um, on a several mm -hmm. occasions. And uh, the last time I saw Mark was um, when he was attending to Don Hickman as Don was uh, uh going through all of his heart attacks. Uh, Don and I started Springfield scene together and, and, um, uh, and he had a serious, serious heart disease problems that he had uh, nine lives and it could have been Mark that was keeping him alive. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, he was what, he had two heart attacks a year and was in the hospital for a month to six weeks with Mark attending to him. So, um, that's, uh, they, they gave Don an extended life that he probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I feel um, grateful and thankful every single day that, you know, he came into my life. He just has just uh, given us all so much. Um, and um, like, you know, with my struggle with normalcy, he was always my normal stick, you know. Uh, <laughs> okay. 
you know, if somebody's misbehaved. Mark, what would be a normal reaction to this? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> what's normal? Should we, should I fly off the handle? Should we, you know, what, what should we do? And then, um, holy you smokes, know. what a great thing to yeah. have. I mean, most yes. of us don't have that. Well, yeah. speaking of, uh, before we get off of the subject of Jeff, uh, when you guys were stationed in Greece, you were in Thessalonica, right? That's right. And that's where my wife's father grew up. Is that right? right. She, oh, I loved it. She's yeah. in a, uh, grew up, uh, she's full-blooded German. Her biological father was German. Her mother was German. But her mother uh, remarried uh, a Greek uh, oh. from Thessalonica. And mm-hmm. um, he, he was always flying back there. And he's... His heart disease doesn't let him go anywhere anymore, but they, they live in Toronto or in Mississauga, just outside of Toronto. But uh, uh, her, uh, she's got a half brother and sister th- uh, through Nick. But we loved having Nick down here. He was the life of. Did I lose you? Oh, there you are. Oh, yeah. yeah, the the Greeks they have a zest for life. They have a, some kind of thing for life. They're great cooks. He comes down here. He just can. Uh, we just can't get enough of the food that he fixes. So, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, uh, Pepe was. Um, uh, I talk about Pepe, my Greek friend, while we were there, who basically was my uh, rock. Um, yes, Pepe. Yeah. Yes. Had it not been for her, I, I don't know if I would have been able to survive um, those last few months in uh, in Greece when when I knew, you know, this. This is, this is tough. This is, this is over. This is going to be Especially for a young mind. I mean, you were a young person. You were, you know, you want to do rock and roll and and get out and have some fun. And there's nothing like that going on in that little uh, seaside village. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, and Peppy was another one who felt like, you know, she had, she had failed me when, oh my gosh, if I hadn't had her every day. You know, I used to feel guilty about the amount of time that I I, I, I took of her day, mm. you know. Um, but, uh, you know, she was lonely, too. And um, we uh, she she's another one who just felt like she could have done more, should have done more. Um, had I only known. And and that and that's that goes back to it was my, the burden is on me, not on them. And this is what I've told these these um, wonderful, caring people is that it, the burden wasn't for them to find out. The burden was for me to tell. And I didn't tell. I chose not to tell. So I own that. I, I, I didn't want them to. Well, and, and it's it changes the dynamic of the relationship when you start becoming that vulnerable. With yes, them. and and you had a great great relationship based on the what you said in the book. So yes. anything that you that vulnerability that was inside of you, if it had gotten exposed, could have changed that wonderful relationship yes. to something that you didn't want to focus on. You weren't yes. ready, yeah. So, but I did I did love the Greek people. It took a bit for them to warm up to me. Uh, but they, all of them, showed such kindness and uh, loving and caring. It was a, it was a tough language to, to navigate oh, yeah. yes. because they just, just like um, you know, Thessaloniki, right. uh, Salonica, 
uh, Thessalonica. You know, they they the same place they pronounce three and four different ways. You know, it's <laughs> the old Greek and the modern Greek, and, mm. and oh my gosh, is it Salonica, Thessaloniki? What is it? You know. And, well, uh, we have that problem with uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Louisville. Louisville, <laughs> Louisville Louisville. Exactly. Um, so, there you uh, go. But anyway, the Greek people were very kind, and you're right. They just have a zest for life that I had not seen, and uh, I, did en- I did enjoy that. Um, yeah, as we, you said, it wasn't particularly fun to be in this little tiny village yeah. where... You know, I was the only, you know, strange white, really white girl. Um, and you weren't you know. contemplative. You weren't sitting and meditating all day long. You would, were no. to enjoy that, that serenity that was there. Correct. Uh. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I did yeah. learn a little bit of Greek, of course, which I've all forgotten. Uh-huh. Enough to shop and enough to, mm-hmm. you know, engage with, uh, to say a few polite, you know, uh, words and, and stuff, but. But uh, back well, to Jeff. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't really have a uh, unkind thing um, to say about uh, Jeff. You know, we were children, and um, I, you know, we were, and Heather was sort of, um, I, I think, kind of the we, we chose different paths. Um, when I gave birth to Heather. Um, I just knew that this was something that I wanted to do and I wanted to do right. And I just didn't trust anybody else to do it. So um, he feels quite justifiably that I, I didn't let him in as much. I, I didn't allow him ever to be a father because I was going to be the mother. And I think I think that's there's some truth to that. Yeah. And I think it was just that protection thing that nothing is ever going to harm this thing. Nothing. And um, I just didn't trust anybody but me um, to make sure that that didn't happen. When he had to be bridging, too. I mean, I've learned after lots of mistakes, you just don't mess with the nest. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know, that as a, as a father, or as a man in the house, you don't mess with the nest. And the, and the mother takes care of the nest. And, yeah. and if you want to have a happy life and a <laughs> happy yes. marriage, you have to learn that eventually. And Jeff... You know, probably didn't want wanted to have more say. You know, he was just right. growing up. He wanted, he needed more. Both of you needed more time to grow. And, That's right. right. Yeah, he's eighteen at this point. Yeah. You know? So, um, and we're eighteen and nineteen, trying to navigate um, all of this. So, you know, he never uh, abused me. He never, you know, basically um, had an unkind thing to say. We were like sister and brother mostly. We yeah. just cohabitated and. Um, you know, if I needed something, you know, he would try to help me get it. Um, so, um, there was, uh, nothing, um, dishonorable about, uh, about Jeff. We just, it just didn't work. Like yeah. most teen marriages don't. Right. Or like most marriages don't anymore. Well, that's true. <laughs> what? 50, 51%? That's a terrible, terrible statistic. So... Well, I, you know, the, what was it, uh, the the old joke about, you know, why are uh, people divorcing so much in life? And, and the old man told uh, the young man, he says, well, we used to die when we were 35. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. 
<laughs> so yeah. marriages lasted their whole life. So. <laughs> yes, yeah. And that was another wonderful thing about Mark's family is that, um, uh, you know, maybe with an exception, um, you know, both of his grandparents, you know, were together. Uh, his one set of his grandparents were married for 73 years. The other one was 60 something. That's only because one of them passed away. Mark's parents have been married for, uh, let's see, Mark is 63. So 64 and a half years. And, um, Mark's brother, you know, so it's just really much more of a stable place. And right. I think I've learned so much from, uh, from all of them. Yeah. Um, and early on though, um, here's a, here's another place where I feel like I need to own a little bit is, um, early on, I did have some, um, issues with my in-laws and I think it was because I was just projecting my own feelings. Like when they would, even try to, if, if I felt like there was a hint of attempt to control, I was going to blast. I was just going to go. And, and so I think that um, caused a lot of issues and my own insecurities. I, I remember um, at one point, Mark and I having a conversation. And at that point, you know, it's the whole um Mark and, and his, uh, I'm, Mark's mom and I are in a boat and we're drowning and Mark's on the side and he can save one of us. Who's he going to save? I always felt like it was going to be his mom. And that was <laughs> how, that's how insecure I was wow. at the time. Wow. You know, so I think I projected a lot of that and made it, um, you know, mm-hmm. a more difficult relationship for the first few years than it needed to be. And I, it's the moment I understood that I was projecting, I stopped. Um, and it has enhanced my life. Um, you know, they've been the parents I've, I've never had. You know, I call them mom and dad. And, um, That's nice. And so, yeah, it took a while, though. It, it, it definitely took a bit for me to understand what I was doing. And obviously, Mark is the oldest, and he had a very, he was very, very close to his mother. And, um, so we both had to agree to share, um, a little bit. And for a while we put Mark in the middle and it was very uncomfortable. And I regret having done that. Uh, wish, wish that I'd been a little more secure in my relationship with Mark than, um, you know, um, than I was. Another funny story about Mark that I'll tell you is, and at the same time when I was very insecure and I just didn't feel like I, um, I deserved having an opinion. I deserved having a reaction. Um, he would challenge me and we would role play. So he would say, okay, I'm John Harmon and you're, um, you know, Lori Harmon or something like that. And so I would get to voice some of the things and some of the feelings that, um, I didn't feel like I deserved to have, um, and it was uh, life-changing. These little wow. games that we would play were um, life-changing. So. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's great that Mark is so uh, comfortable with himself that he could play those games and not take it personally, too. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think he just knew there is a wall here. And mm-hmm. he was just like, what can I do? 
and being in med school at the time too, you know, um, I was a guinea pig for lots of things, you know, <laughs> you know I, I had my eyes and ears and throat and heart and uh, all kinds of things poked and prodded uh, more times than the majority uh, of uh, folks would know. But um, I think being in med school at the time, you know, it's like, okay, we're talking about this. And uh, so mm. he may have been taking a psych class and they may have been think, talking about role playing and the therapy therapy therapeutic mm -hmm. value yes. of owning owning it indirectly but yet voicing that and that's uh, that's what we did so it was it was very very helpful he was the only I never got any professional help um, you know it was just Mark and I working it out wow so, and nothing nothing scared him you know, I, I thought that if he if he knew the truth, he would think less of me. You know, that's how we feel as yeah, victims. Yeah, absolutely. It's our yeah. fault. It is. So it took a long time. He never reacted um, poorly um, to something or overreacted, although I knew he was angry and that there were times where he had to keep his distance from my dad and from my mom and from yeah. my sisters and um, but he never um, reacted strongly and never made me feel as though he was anything other than a soft place. Um, wow. So, wow. Mm -hmm. it's a yeah. special man. That's hard for us to do, isn't it? To be a soft place yes. for people. Yes. I mean, we're good at taking control and, and, um, and making things work, but yeah. I wouldn't characterize me as a soft place to my <laughs> <laughs> I can be. I think there were years where I, I probably wasn't, especially for him. You know, he had to be the, he always had to be the strong one, the soft one. And um, so, you know, uh, I, I, I certainly, I, I certainly can be now. And for my children, I always wanted to be, right. uh, to be that. So it took some nurturing. And uh, most of that nurturing came from friends um, and from the evidence that, you know, I saw in other kind-hearted people who played a role in my life, and then close friends that I would see how they parented and ask them. Um, but, you know, no one, no one knew the details, no one. No matter how close of a friend you were, I just didn't feel comfortable sharing my story uh, because I felt like they would, they would think less of me and my youngest sister, unfortunately, still feels that way. Um, oh, wow. She didn't really want me to publish the book. I think um, she, um, I think she was just afraid that people would find out, um, and that they would somehow think less of her. So, and she couldn't make it all the way through um, the book. Um, I think she got to the point where uh, dad was effectively uh, waterboarding Debbie in the sink um, after he caught her smoking and stuff. And she said, that's it. I just can't, I can't relive it uh, anymore. Yeah. Wow. So, that was the um, scariest thing I think I read was the waterboarding. And, yeah. um, and of course, we see where Debbie ended up. Yeah. And it's so sad. Uh, it could have happened even even in the best families, I mean, some people, once they get addicted to drugs, their, their life goes down a path that, that seems to be unrecoverable. Yes, yeah. But you could see, you know, given her situation where she would find m more comfort than 
the typical person and just not being able to remember and being in a loopy sort of existence for years, not really wanting to um, live, just just sort of be. Um, and um, so, yeah, it was uh, poor Debbie. Oh, my goodness. I just... Um, you know, it's hard, it's hard not to tear up even thinking about what, you know, she went through and how, um, all, you know, all she ever wanted was for my dad to love her. And he just, he just wasn't capable of it. I wondered if it would have been better for her not to have found out about D. Um, I think for a while, D was a soft place for her. I do. I think, although I don't think Debbie, until much, much later, uh, shared uh, some of this with Debbie, with Dee, or with her brother, Michael. Um, but I think that, um, I think she felt, at last, there's somebody who loves me for me, for my red hair and for my... Um, uh, physical characteristics that my father found so disgusting and um and you know I can laugh um he didn't like her laugh um and so all of all of those things I think for a bit it was uh you know for a, a year or two um I think it was good for her but then you know um then the addiction it had the addiction not happened I think her life could have been very, very different. But what happens, as you know, is when you have an addict, they they just a, a, abuse everybody in their life. Right. And when she couldn't get money from us or money from me or something that she, you know, I think she wore her dad and her brother out with the constant, you know, because they knew before we did. Um, because mm -hmm. in those days, I wasn't really having a whole lot of interaction with uh, with Debbie, unless there was a funeral or a wedding or something. And uh, and Dee and Michael, I think, knew long before we did that that Deb was a drug addict, and um, you know she had burned that bridge. And 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 then I think that's why she came to me um, and to some of the other Harmon people is because she had exhausted up. All of the other right, people that right. she could get things from. Yeah, I've got that similar situation in my life too, so I know exactly where it ends up. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, my younger sister and and my brother pickled his liver and died at 35 uh, mm -hmm. with alcohol uh, addiction, um, but it was complicated with other pharmaceuticals uh, drugs that he could get his hands on, and it it took his life when he was 35 years old. Uh, my younger sister uh, would be the youngest in the family, and she, a lifelong drug addict, lifelong, and had uh, stolen and abused my parents to, to almost the point of bankruptcy. Uh, or actually, they did take them to bankruptcy once. Uh, but she just kept, uh, she was uh, one of the best con artists I think I've ever met. And that's typical of the personality of a drug addict. They yeah. set you up. Um, by getting your confidence con, the con part of con artists, <laughs> to get your confidence and then they artistically manipulate uh, yes. money out of your life. That's right. And Deb know how to, knew how to do it. She could do that with Dad for a while. She definitely could do that with Mom. Um, and she definitely knew, you know, she would remind me, you know, one of her favorite 
sort of manipulative of uh, comments to me was always, you know, do you know how many beatings I took for you? Oh, ooh. So that would pull. <laughs> that would pull on it. And you knew, and you knew how many, because you went through it too. So, uh, wow. Yeah. What a great con that was. Yeah, poor thing. I just, I just felt so bad for her and wanted to try to help and tried to help, but um, I couldn't do it for her, and I couldn't be the police. Yeah. So, um, but it, it, it really was a, a, a difficult life that I really wouldn't wish on anyone. Um, a couple things I wanted to say also is is just to remind um, folks that the the proceeds for um, the the book sales um, are currently going to um, Habitat for Humanity of Sangamon County and the Central Illinois Food Bank. Um, and I think especially now um, with food insecurity and with housing insecurity. Um, with the pandemic and uh, with the loss of jobs and um, the food and housing insecurity is at an all-time high. So it just made sense for me to uh, try to help um, in those areas. Um, I've been involved with the food bank for decades and with um, Habitat for Humanity for five or six. And um, they're just two really, really good charities and um, so just uh, so everyone yeah, knows, proceeds good. go, you know, directly to them. And so far, about 20000 has gone to um, the um, um, Habitat and um, about 4000 has gone to um, the food bank. Um, because the first print, which we sold out of, it was exclusively to the Habitat. Okay. Um, and now the second print um, that we're just about sold out of, um, I've shared the, the proceeds. So um, we're thinking about doing a third print and that will, the, those, that print will also proceed both, um, the proceeds will go to both those two places. So, um, you know, and the, and I would definitely advocate for people to buy it at our local bookstores. Um, Barnes and Noble has been wonderful um, to me, and they've consistently had the book. And um, you know, um, I remember the first time I walked in, you know, as as an author, which is still hard for me to say. I'm an author. <laughs> At best, I feel like a storyteller. But anyway, as an author, the the oh, you just can't imagine how good it feels to walk in and see a stack of your books. Um, somewhere, and so they've been very, very good to me. So I would really advocate people buying it from uh, the Barnes and Noble and independent bookstores like the Sly Fox in Verdon. Um, they are carrying the book, and I've um, went and autographed several um, for them. So um, that's my pitch. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I saw the book stack uh, when I delivered the last uh, issue of the magazine to the store. We sell mm -hmm. out of whatever uh, our magazine sells out every time as well, yeah. and um, uh, so I saw your stack back there, and I wondered how the, the sales were going. Thanks for sharing that with us. It's good, going very well. Actually, I just went by yesterday, and I have a a favorite person that I go to um, when I when I go in, and I talked to him just yesterday, and I said, "How's it going?" And he said, "Teresa." We're still selling four or five a day. Wow. 
So that's, uh, that's awesome. That's, that's just awesome. And, um, you know, I, I think another good, good thing about, uh, about the book is that, um, the feedback that I've been getting from people, um, and, um, you know, uh, uh, several people have said how um, courageous they thought that I was for telling my story. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily feel like I've been courageous. You know, I just, it, I, I didn't have, it wasn't a conscious choice. It just, it was just something that I felt like I had to do. I just, um, I had to do it. But the idea that it helps, it's helping people and the hundreds and hundreds of emails and text messages and Facebook um, messages and stuff from total strangers who have just said, um, thank you, um, because of your book, I've been able to open up and tell people about it. Um, thank you, because of you, I'm, I'm getting out of an abusive relationship. Uh, it, mm -hmm. That alone um, has made my 20-year journey to get this book published all worth it. Yes, it definitely is a great book. It was a great read. I couldn't put it down. I read it as many hours as I could until I got through it. I think it was maybe less than a week of reading in my spare time, and I would go to sleep with it, wake up, and read another chapter. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, so it was. it's a good read, um, good story. It could make a good film, by the way. I think it, it would... Uh, it would be, I don't know what they would call it, a drama or, or what I'm kind of... I'm not sure, or, but oh boy, we could get a house built out of, out of that. Yeah, wow. spread the word. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, I would like to maybe uh, let you know that I think there's a lot more conversation that I could have with you. I didn't get to everything on my list uh, today, but this is podcast has almost been an hour and a half already. Uh, so I think we should probably table it right now, and then uh, maybe you'll agree to, to do another session with me down the road because of the, the we never got into the implications of what uh, this might could do uh, and trigger for our society and, and talk about uh, domestic abuse in general and where it's at in the, in the world. Uh, Anything I can do to, to spread the, the news that, you know, domestic violence is here and it's never it doesn't it hasn't gone away and it's not a uh, when i was talking about all of the feedback i got on on uh facebook um one person um and it was troubling it was a troubling response and maybe you can help me figure out what your take on it was but the the response was um i i thought you were black until i saw your picture Based on your story, I thought you were black until I saw your picture. And as if mm. domestic violence is a racial issue, a racial problem, that only people of color experience domestic abuse. And um, I mean, that's what I took from that. So the, the answer mm. is it knows no color. It, 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 it is rampant and um, affects every um, section of our country. Yeah, so. I, I, um, I am surprised that they said that, but I understand where it's coming from. Uh, mm -hmm. Having grown up in Memphis, Tennessee, mm -hmm. uh, where 
you know, it's like 80% African-American in Memphis. And mm -hmm. I was there when Martin Luther King was assassinated and uh, grew up watching that city go from a thriving metropolis to a depressed uh, city. And it hasn't recovered 50 years later. It's, it's still very depressed down there. Yeah. And, uh, and knowing uh, uh, quite a few African-Americans and having talked to them about their stories, that's very similar. Uh, there's very similar the mm -hmm. abuse going on in their ho households, um, mm -hmm. whether it's to perpetuate uh, their social standing or whether it's to uh, keep them from stepping out of line. I don't know what it is, but it's uh, every African-American that I've had work with me and work for my companies have told me similar stories. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe that's something next time we can, we yeah. can dive into. Um, yeah, definitely. So anything I can do to help, I'm happy to spread the word. So if you want to chat again, you yep. just send a Zoom link. Okay. <laughs> I'll um, do that, Teresa. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Have a great Bye. day. Okay. Bye-bye.